we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we are coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, also known as the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Take that, Athens. Hey, uh, so if you value what we do, we could use your support. You can visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, you can consider becoming a sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Lipschmitz knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, later in the program, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to talk about China hogging all the fish. That sounds interesting, and it will be. We're also going to talk about how Big Ag has been suing family farmers and landowners and actually, so far, losing. And uh, then we'll talk about, uh, well, we're going to discuss whether it makes sense at this point in the uh, history of humanity. Do we we just not build anything new at all? (laughs) But first, uh, I want to welcome Carl Olson to the program. Carl and I go way back to 1992, when I knocked on his door as a candidate for the state house, uh, Carl knows more about the, con- the 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 marijuana topic than anybody I know, and uh, I want to talk about um, President Biden's recent initiative. But we got a lot more ground to cover on that as well. Carl, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. Hey. So first, big news: Joe Biden uh, announcing that uh, he would. Uh, Pardon thousands of convicted uh, criminals, uh, those, those convicted of simple possession of marijuana. And um, there's another part to that, but that's the first, the first part of Biden's initiative. I wanted to get your feedback on that. Is that a big deal or is that uh, a kind of a token gesture? What, what's your assessment of the president's action on that front? Um, I think it's a big deal. Um, it's a fulfillment of a campaign promise. Uh, people thought it would happen sooner, but I'm sure they didn't expect the pandemic and a war in Ukraine to get um, to delay that. So I, I think it makes sense. Um, and uh, people were waiting for that. It, it was a campaign promise, and, and so that fulfills that campaign promise. So do, do we have any? I voted for him. I'm so happy. <laughs> okay. Do we have any idea how many people are impacted by that decision? A few thousand, but not very many in Iowa. Okay, because it's, it's uh, yeah, it's it's federal. Those convicted at the federal level, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, you... there just weren't that many in Iowa. I'm not sure why. Um, there was a lot of them in Arizona, and uh, hmm. that was the biggest one. So, so I guess it has to do with immigration in some way. Just looking at the geographics of it, but I don't really know. So with, uh, with the president taking this initiative, do you, is it likely that some states will follow suit and, and pardon uh, those convicted of simple possession of marijuana at the state level? Will they, will we, will, will, do you think we'll see momentum in that direction? Yeah, I think s- some states have already done it, and a few states have announced they're going to do it now. Um, so, yeah, a few states are... Um, 
already done it, and a few states are going to do it now. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, could, it could be that they knew Biden was going to do this, and they were just waiting for the momentum or something. I, I'm not right. sure, but anyway, yeah, it, it, it'll it'll uh, get a little steam, uh, gather a little steam here. Yeah. Well, and, and again, when I first met you, this was um, this was like a, a, a do not touch zone for any politician. I mean, I was one of the a few exceptions that actually bothered to. Uh, you know, present any oh, legislative yeah. proposals. It, it didn't. It didn't pull well back then. Yeah. No, but you know, but I, I did some research. I was like, I couldn't. This has been long enough ago. But back in 1993, almost what 30 years ago, uh, me and eight other Democrats and one Republican introduced. It was House File 404, and and it was some. Um, it didn't go the entire nine yards in terms of full legalization, but it did. Uh, it did allow people to raise marijuana. For medicinal purposes, so yeah, we we um, worked on a bill in the Iowa Senate that that was uh, would have allowed people to grow their own, and that was 1993, and it uh, yeah, that's the same one. Passed, that's the it same bill. It's fifty to nothing in the Senate, but they took out the homegrown and replaced it with confiscated marijuana, and then <laughs> right. Harold Van Manen said, "Oh no, that we can't use confiscated marijuana and give it to people that are right have a." Compromised health system. And he and, and he himself? was the uh, he was the speaker of the house at the time. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. And that uh, I forgot that it had passed the Senate uh, and on a fifty to nothing vote. Uh, you know, and then I, I don't I don't remember any significant legislation on marijuana passing for the rest of my time up there um, for fourteen. No. Yeah, I worked with Senator Zamoniak on a bill two years after that, and that went nowhere. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to see how far we have come. And now, again, uh, back to Biden's proposal or Biden's action. The uh, the other half of that, the, the, the less sexy part of it, the part that really hasn't gotten a lot of conversation is a directive to um, reevaluate uh, marijuana's status as a, a schedule one drug. Um, and some some people who are really looking at this cl- closely says that has much, uh, much more potential to really impact cannabis policy. What's your thought on that, Carl? Well, the way that he made the announcement saying that marijuana is not as dangerous as stuff in Schedule 2 like methamphetamine and fentanyl uh, really drove home the point that um, not only is it misclassified, it's grossly, (laughs) seriously misclassified. So I thought... It was not just the announcement that they were going to consider scheduling. It was the way that he said it, made it, gave it special emphasis. Yeah. And, and then the secretary, of course, he's been working with the, the head of the DEA, is a, um, a friend of Cory Booker's from New Jersey, and the attorney general Merrick Garland, and the uh, Becerra um, is the head of the Department of Health and Human Services. All of these people have been talking about this, so it's not like, Biden's just coming out of the blue here. This is orchestrated. And the Secretary of Health and Human Services said there's no new science. Well, what that means is there's no new clinical research because you can't do clinical research on something in Schedule 1, so it doesn't exist. Right, right. So he said they're going to look at state laws. Well, the federal government has never considered state laws legitimate, so they've never looked at that. So to me... This is a sea change in the way they're going to look at this. Instead of looking at it 
as being a scheduled controlled substance, they're going to tr- look at it like, should it even be in the Controlled Substances Act at all? Does right. it have a high potential for abuse? And man, if they look at that state data, they're going to say there's almost none. Yeah. So <laughs> I, yeah, right. And so I, yeah, and, I, I mean, mean, so to me, I see potential here. I understand people's frustration with an administrative process and lack of confidence, but. I'm thinking that I need to drive this process forward and put my own explanation on it, how I see it, and get people to look at that and get enthusiastic about it. So, yeah, and I'm that, really ex- enthusiastic yeah. about that. And, and again, you're you're more enthusiastic about part two of the Biden uh, Biden initiative relevant to rescheduling marijuana. Now, um. I know that, uh, and, and the two the two work together because the sure. parking thing got everybody's attention. Sure. Not everybody can see the scheduling thing as being like they can't well, like just visualize it. it Pardons it, you can visualize. It's, so. a, it's a schedule. It's a schedule one problem that it's because it's been schedule one that marijuana has gotten so many people into prison, in part. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, we have. Uh, I mean, there, this is an issue that's being discussed nationwide. Uh, I know Democrats have been very, very timid about this until pretty recently. And again, I'm not really tracking as closely other states what's happening. But I know in Iowa, uh, suddenly Democrats seem to be okay with this. (laughs) I mean, they they, they didn't campaign on it forever, forever, really. They they try not to talk about it much. Some some Democrats have been introducing bills for a long time. Right. Myself. You were there, you were doing it. (laughs) But um, it gained a little bit of momentum. in previous years, but the polling has gone like we're at around 80 to 90 percent in favor of medical mar- expanding the medical marijuana program, not just having it. We right. have one, right? But it's fi- over 50, it's like 57 or 60 percent in favor of total legalization, right? And so, and without that, those polling numbers. So, anyway, now you see the Democrats have announced this is one of their major. Um, Issues. They they have four issues, and this is one of their four main issues. Yeah. Like you never saw that before. Right. So. I mean, it, re- it reminds me of, uh, of of marriage equality. When I when I first spoke yeah. out against the, uh, it was called the Defense of Marriage Act, and it was basically quote defending marriage by saying marriage could only be between a man and a woman. And I was uh, I remember I was ordered by the uh, minority leader not to speak out against that. I did anyhow, and. Um, Got a primary opponent because of it back in 1996, but now sure. de- now Democrats are all on board with that. But and this seems to be seems to me this has the same trajectory. Um, Democrats are afraid of it, um, kind of hem- you know, hedging it a little bit for a while, be- being more and well, more supportive. Well, that's quietly. the problem with the two-party system is both parties will compromise their principles to get to work with the team because they can't get anything done unless their team is in power. So you see that on both sides yeah. of the political spectrum. Now here in Iowa, we're running for governor. We have, a, of course, the Democrat, Deidre DeGere, the incumbent Republican, Kim Reynolds, and a third party candidate, a libertarian, Rick Stewart. And Rick Stewart came out with a really uh, well done, I thought it was well done, just objectively well done ad, hard hitting ad on marijuana, didn't criticize the Democratic all, you know, went after Governor Reynolds and her lack of interest in doing moving forward in any way, shape or form on marijuana laws. And I my sense is that that may have helped drive the Democrats to be a little bit more uh, vocal about where they stand on it. What is am I overemphasizing 
Um, the Libertarian I'm, candidates. I'm not emphasis. sure. Uh, Rick Stewart can't help but do that because he's just pragmatic. So he he's <laughs> not going to call out the Democrats. He's going to call out the Republicans just because that's his take on the issue. I mean, on that issue. Well, and that, that's an issue that Libertarian candidates are pretty consistent on. Uh, sure. You know, they, they they don't want to see government. Uh, in launching, continuing this drug war that has done nothing but cost incredible amounts of money and damaged incredible numbers of lives. And, you yeah. know, I think Rick's just frustrated with the, with Governor Reynolds and it wasn't intended to help the Democrats, but it does. Right. Yeah. Well, do you see, do you see, I mean, let, let's presume that Republicans retain control of the state house in Iowa and many other places. Do you see, I mean, when you said there, the polling shows 50 to 60 percent of Americans support full legalization, that's getting to a tipping point in terms of public opinion. I mean, I, I would think well, that even Republicans well, well, are going to start What I think around. it is, is the Republican Party is really tied up in corporate America, and corporate America is not the majority of people, but they have a lot of money. And the Democratic Party is not tied up in corporate America? Not quite to the level of <laughs> of the Republicans, no, I don't okay. think so. But what? I mean, what of, of course they are, but yeah. not to that level. I mean, there was originally when 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 marijuana was originally, you know, deemed to be a, a drug and put on Schedule One. My impression was there was originally uh, an economic motive from uh, another industry to you know, to limit the ability of. Of, of marijuana to compete either as a drug or as a as a product like for hemp uh, and so it, it doesn't seem like that that same economic pressure against marijuana is still there and if it isn't there it's probably just a matter of time before even republicans come around to supporting change well like, reefer madness spread over the mexican border to the southwestern <laughs> states and their whole thing was racism Ah, so good it point. was to good point. eliminate competition for jobs from, uh, you know, migrants. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, that. Yeah. That was back I mean, it's in. The, an, it's always economic, but the sure. way that the economics play out is a little. But would you specific. agree? Would you agree that the, the economic uh, angle on marijuana is no longer as compelling as it might have been at first years ago, decades ago? Well, the legalization of industrial hemp certainly busted open a wide market of different things. Um, so right. the the whole entire thing has changed, and it's so hard to distinguish hemp from marijuana. It's like it takes a chemistry set to distinguish the two. Right. So I, I think they um, that's just a sign of things to come. That yeah. that is not going to uh, be ideal. We're going to have to move forward. And we're not going to move backward on that. So, yeah. well, I always admire someone who who spends a big chunk of their life devoted to an issue that, you know, it may not be the most pressing concern in most people's minds, but it is an important one. And you've done that, Carl. And I really commend you for your what, thirty, forty years of, of of, of activism on on this issue. Yeah. Yeah, I was active in using marijuana for quite a while, and then I became active in advocating for it after that because I got so familiar with it that I uh, just thought that I wasn't going to, um, it wasn't possible to get more comfortable with it, so yeah. I needed to <laughs> right. do something about it to change the stigma. Yeah. Well, we'll see First where... First, I had to change the stigma in my own mind, and then 
then I realized that I was absolutely positive I was right. Yeah. So. Well, uh, history is proving you correct. So, again, uh, yeah. thank you so much for joining us, Carl. Appreciate it. Uh, folks, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Folks, we've been talking with Carl Olson. And when we come back from a short break, uh, we're going to be talking about construction. I'm going to throw out the, the, uh, the crazy idea that maybe we should just stop building anything. And joining me for that conversation is architect Mark Klipsham. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Vibes Kitchen and Bar in downtown Des Moines at the corner of 13th and Walnut serves clever, creative, modern interpretations of American classic bites and drinks. The Vibes team offers great food and customer service in a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere. Vibes is the perfect place for your party or function, and it's got an outdoor patio ideal for hobnobbing with friends and co-workers or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes Kitchen and Bar's Facebook page. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, our niche here is more important than ever. So please support what we do and more broadly support community radio stations. In our case, go to the Fallon Forum website where you can learn more. You can become a monthly sponsor. You can donate. You know, and speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Uh, if you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, uh, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. That's uh, daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, I'd like to welcome to the program uh, Mark Klipsham. Mark's an architect. He likes this program. He helps sponsor this program. And I, I have a tough question for you, Mark, because I, I, would, I would think that the question I'm about to ask would really concern realtors, architects, developers, city planners. Uh, it seems to me that, okay, so there's a story out of The Guardian last week. And I'll read you a quote. It says, quote, Earth's wildlife populations have plunged by an average of 69% in just under 50 years, according to a leading scientific assessment, as humans continue to clear forests, consume beyond the limits of the planet, and pollute on an industrial scale. That's in The Guardian. 
And that what that says to me is we have to stop building stuff, whether it's houses, roads, malls, uh, you name it. We have to stop building stuff. And you're an architect, Mark. You make your living building stuff. Why Am, am I right or wrong about that? Well, technically, an architect doesn't build stuff. But it's your lucky day because I'm a builder, too. <laughs> well, good. I was hoping it would be my lucky day. Yeah, well, um, caveats abound. First one is there's building and there's building. There's styrofoam, vinyl-clad, asphalt-shingled wonders, which have the lifetime of about 25 years before they need major stuff. And then there's building timelessly, which my most beautiful home I've ever seen was in Spain. Couldn't tell if it was built five years ago or 5,000 years ago. And you know what? It's going to be around another 500, 1,000 years. Absolutely what, beautiful. What's, what's it a, took, a long, took a long time to build. So what's the difference? What, what, what's the difference between the, I, I'm going to assume it's maybe several hundred years old, the, the home in Spain. What's the difference between that and the other stuff, the modern stuff that you're talking about? Well, it's timeless for one thing, and it's built, it's got stuff. Uh, it's like I'm working on a home over in Boone, didn't have a stick of insulation when I started, but it was built with real two-by-fours, inch-thick plaster on the inside, one-by-eight okay. boards on the outside, not plywood. It, it had mass. Right. It, but um, but it, but yeah. isn't part of the problem that we're running out of quote stuff to build things with? I mean, the, the the planet is not making any more of the raw materials that we use. I mean, lumber sure that's renewable. Uh, marble is not. Uh, rock is not renewable. Uh, <laughs> are we running out well, of some no, of the well, things? But but if you do it right, you don't need to. There's there's stuff standing from the Roman times because it was built to last. Okay. Uh, this stuff we're building now is is. I don't disparage anybody about their home, but it, it's ticky-tack. It's the landfill waiting to happen. So you had said we should stop building, and I was like, yeah, we should stop building the way we are building, and certainly in a, a infrastructure-heavy, sprawl fashion. Absolutely. In fact, we need to. It's going to take care of itself, but we should consciously look forward to shrinking back to a human-based city core. The stuff on the edge of the town is not going to last when you pull the plug. We'd have to talk about that. Yeah. You pull the plug on a house in Iowa or anywhere with humidity, and if you aren't dehumidifying it or conditioning it, you got about a week or two, you know, the, the floods in Florida, the yeah. stuff that happened in Texas, and the house is toasted. This house I yeah. looked at in Spain, it could get water up eight feet inside yeah. of you. You'd drain it back out, dry it out, and it'd be good to go. For yeah, we, 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 we have a house on our land in Ireland that was built back in the 18, 1880s, I think, by my great-grandfather. But it has not been inhabited for a while by humans, and now it's inhabited by mold and weasels. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and it's still in better shape than the ones that were built yesterday. Well, probably, the yeah. Wall the, the walls are made from the stones that inhabited the land, and, uh, and the walls, I think, are about two feet thick. But yeah, it's. So you um, know what? It took a long time to build that, and a lot of labor. So first off, it's valued and treasured, and it's going to last a long time. And by virtue of its quality, it takes a long time to build. So not as much is built. Right. But let me ask and you this. I, let me let me try start. to let me try to clarify. You know, I don't. Um, when I say we shouldn't build anything new, 
I guess what I really want to say is we shouldn't build anything, anything at all on, on new land. If it's farmland, let it be farmed. If it's forest, let it remain a forest. If it's a wetland, keep it that way. If it's in conservation reserve, keep it that way. Just, just stop expanding the human footprint beyond the current uh, realm of our, dom- of our dominion over the land. I think that to me is the bottom line. But I don't think cities... And you're in Ames, I'm in Des Moines. I don't think cities want to hear that. I think cities are married to the maxim that if you don't grow, you die. Well, I'm not that party that you pull the string and I say the lines. So once again, <laughs> it's caveat time. Uh, what, what is the large, the vast majority of Iowa land occupied with, which is monocropping, which is completely unsustainable. It, it's, we're killing ourselves. So... Uh, you mean you mean you're not a fan of corn and soybeans? I'm surrounded by it and have to protect my garden from all the stuff they spray on around it. Blah blah blah. So this this land, which right now is is basically biodesert. Uh, another thing very threatening to a city is a self-supporting city that's not part of their expansion program that doesn't need anything else. A group of people that grow their own food in those, heaven forbid, timelessly built, call them earth ships to be hippies, whatever. These, these buildings made of natural materials that have mass and are timeless and long-lasting and can be repaired by their owners. They don't need a guy with a truck, mm. gal with a truck, whatever. And it's a community that might have a road to another town nearby, but by and large, they're, they don't need a whole lot. They're fairly self-sufficient. Right. That is very threatening to the whole city growth economy concept. It's stable. It's stable. What a, what a sustainable, what a bizarre concept. Yeah. So back to the city thing, and I'm going to dialogue just a hair. Um, I'm seeing, for example, manufactured housings, housing as the answer to affordable housing in a lot of situations. A cursory research on the Internet says those require about 50% more than a typical home. Lots of surface area, very little volume, lifespan of 30 right. to 50 years. That ain't much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's I'm sorry, it's landfill waiting to happen. Yeah. And the way they orient them is for the maximum development and yeah. ease of development as opposed to, say, addressing the sun, heaven forbid, uh, protection from wind, there are tornado magnets. Uh, the, you know, there's no... They're a box sitting up off the ground. They have yeah. massive surface amount. It's so, incredibly so affordable housing doesn't really describe what they are. It's so Mark, to get in, but that's about it. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, there there are plenty of cities that are married to that. that that's that's how they grow and build. That's well, I was I was talking with uh, Clyde Evans uh, actually today. He's a director of development at West Des Moines. West Des Moines is one of the is it was the largest growing suburb in the Des Moines metro. Now it's got some competition, but it's one of several large growing suburbs. And I, I challenge him. I says, so what about this maxim that the city, if the city doesn't grow, it's it's going to die? And he said, well, a city needs to grow to grow its tax base, and you know the tax base is needed because you've got citizens, you know, residents who demand services. And I'm, and I understand that. I also understand that the legislature in Iowa, at least, and probably in other states, has uh, created tax policies that make that make it difficult for cities to provide services without an increasing tax base. But at some point, 
we need a new economic model that doesn't look at tax base and GNP as the uh, as the way that we measure our health and well-being. And I don't I don't know if there are cities. Maybe there are a few cities out there. Maybe in your experience as an architect and a builder, you're 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 in contact with city officials who get that, who see a different way to approach how we live on the land, how we grow and develop on the land. Uh, very very few. The the thing that that always galls me is the word stability is paramount to stagnation and i say well well wait a minute what what is the logical conclusion to ever expanding growth i think we've talked about this on your show before it's star wars the planet where the whole thing is covered right when yeah is, when, yeah when is that magic time that you stop yeah i think mean, oh okay that's 73% of the land covered with people and stuff. Well, I, 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 like, I, I believe in a Star Wars example, isn't it pretty much 100% of the planet is uh, no, developed? No, I'm saying, but that's when do we stop? Yeah. When, oh, when, yeah, is, yeah. when is enough growth enough or, or yeah. is it never enough? And once again, so we consume ourselves. I mean, it, we're already there, so how much more? Yeah. And if you pull that economic plug, that energy, that all that kind of stuff we talked about, it's like a marshmallow in the microwave. It, it inflates with energy. As soon as the power goes off, it collapses into a gooey mess. Yeah. Uh, and we then, should be going back and rebuilding inner city, putting that money into homes. Yeah. It's almost like a death panel. Okay, now, so that, that's a good point. But, uh, again, back to Clyde Evans, the development director at West of Wine. Yeah. I asked him about that as well. And he said, yeah, you can develop existing areas of town. Um, but it could be two, two problems or one, it's contentious. The neighbors may not like what you have planned for development. And secondly, it's expensive. So how do you deal with that? When you want to redevelop an existing area, how do you deal with the contention, the, the not in my backyard, uh, attitude and also the cost? Huge difference between cheap and cost effective. And there's also short term and long term. We are not going to survive if we continue down the road we are. So what is expensive versus absolute failure? No, and, and it's just like, you know what, you're, you're, you got rotting roof structure, you got lead paint all over the thing, your foundation is crumbling. You know what, guys, that's a money pit. It, it, it's never going to be beautiful again. It needs to be rebuilt. Oh, wait a minute. Here's this other house. You know, it's in pretty good condition. Let's come back and insulate it. Let's, you know, put some windows in for solar gain, maybe a, a vertical axis wind turbine or something like that. And they go like, oh, yeah. It's like, no, we can actually make your house a whole lot better for not a whole lot much more money. And it's going to make it better, hmm. more enjoyable to live in. And more affordable. There's so, so is redevelopment is redevelopment of existing property or existing developed areas? Is it not? more expensive in your experience? Once again, big picture, long term, if I'm developing virgin farmland that you know darn well we're going to need to grow food in the name of cheap, well, I wouldn't need shoes if I cut my feet off, would I? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you wouldn't, would you? (laughs) It's not sustainable. It's not even stable. Let's get to stability first. And stability means hard work and investment in real stuff, not not plugging a power cord in. That's not it's resilient. It's not sustainable. I want something. I want a community like that one that was built on the monocrop land 
that I can walk away from and it's going to be fine. I don't have to go bail it out from disasters. I don't have to subsidize it. I don't need it to grow. It's fine. Yeah. The only reason I need to grow is because the tax revenue of the existing development is financially insolvent. It can't pay for the infrastructure that supports it because it is so lacking in density. Yeah. This is just basic math. A fifth grader should be able to do this. Yeah. Somehow cities can't get this blows my mind. Now, one thing it's that a, it's a shell game. one thing that Clyde Evans uh, said to me that I thought was encouraging. He said. Uh, so that the city, one thing cities can do is not chase every development that comes along, and I that's encouraging. But I wonder how many cities have any level of discipline that would, you know, that would, you know, allow them to reject a development proposal that doesn't make sense for their community. I'm guessing it's pretty few. Completely upside down. They they do court developers and give them the tax incentive to build there that the taxpayers are going to have to make up. These are invariably national companies. So the wealth, the wealth, capital W-A-L-T-H, is going out of state while you're getting local sales tax and wage jobs. Big deal. And you're giving it away to the farm in the process. It should be the exact opposite. Uh, in Spain, the developers see 10% of the land, which they will develop themselves for the city at their cost. And the city decides minimum amounts of coverage, not maximum amounts of coverage. In other words, you have to build this dense because our city needs to be a net gain infrastructure tax base, not this ever need to yeah. grow and grow and grow. It is so backwards and upside down. I, so, there's only one person that could have thought this up, and it would have been a chamber of commerce or something like that. <laughs> so let's, let's, put, let's put our fantasy hats on for a second here. Let's say there wasn't that, an accountant, that's for sure. Okay, so let's say that cities developers, planners, city councils, mayors, suddenly uh, get religion and they understand, oh yeah, we've got to only develop what we have access to. We, we, can't, we can't annex any new land. We can't condemn any farmland. Uh, and there are cities, of course, in, in, in Des Moines, uh, we have Clive and Windsor Heights, two cities that are landlocked that have to do that. But let's say that all cities suddenly have to play by that rule. How does that affect architects and builders like yourself, would you still be able to make a living? Would you still be able to thrive? The analogy is, are you going to go strong and tall or are you going to get sprawling and fat? Okay. <laughs> the reason they don't want it to redevelop is because it's, this is going to break your heart. And it's hard work you might not go home at five o'clock. I don't know. But as it were, you've got to work so hard and so much to chase the dollar to support basically the sprawl and the growth economy, once again, we have no stability again. Hmm. Uh, no, I, I love a challenge, multi-use, you know, multi-zoning, uh, walkable, livable, all that stuff. Like your basic roll out a carpet of grass in the suburbs. I mean, I could do that by sleep. And it looks like they do. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Now, Mark, uh, Always some good food for thought talking to you about this stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we've got a ways to go to get to the point where that's that's going to happen. But, you know, maybe the declining of viability of fossil fuel also contributed to um, more focus on redevelopment. Hey, i got to run to a break. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining us. Say, I, I live for challenging hard work. Okay. I don't want easy work. So, oh, well, yeah. Good. I know who to call then. 
All right. <laughs> hey, folks, we got to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss um, how big agricultural corporations uh, who are connected with big oil corporations are suing family farmers and landowners because those landowners and farmers don't want them on their land surveying to build pipelines. And the cool thing is those farmers are winning. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, you can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details. Uh, thanks to Vibes Kitchen and Bar, serving creative interpretations of American classic food and drink. Vibes has a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere and an awesome outdoor patio. It's the perfect place for parties or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more on Vibes Kitchen and Bar's Facebook page. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, so... You know, this may sound almost impossible to believe, but big corporations that want to build carbon dioxide pipelines across the upper Midwest, uh, and in Iowa, 2,000 miles of land would be taken to build these pipelines. Uh, these, um, these corporations that want to do this, they're primarily either large agricultural entities like Summit or big oil companies like uh, Valero, um, ADM, Archer Daniels Midland, is also part of this. Uh, these companies um, are using the precedent of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which um, was at the time unprecedented, that a company could come in and have permission to use eminent domain to take land for a private purpose is, is, is beyond the realm of consideration for the historic use of eminent domain. I mean, when I was a lawmaker, I you know, we passed eminent domain limitation bills overwhelmingly, bipartisanly. And no one ever imagined, I don't think, that, that you could have used it for a private company that is providing nothing. There's no public benefit to this, and especially with the Kodak's 
with the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, that oil is primarily being shipped overseas. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how much, but certainly now that uh, President o former President Obama allowed oil companies to ship their product without it being refined, uh, it's pretty clear that a lot of it is going overseas before it's even being uh, turned into gasoline in this country. So uh, again, this is this background. That happened. Dakota Access was allowed to use eminent domain, and now these three companies, or these three pipelines, some of them with multiple companies involved. Did, did I mention Black, BlackRock? BlackRock is behind one of these companies. They want to come in and build this pipeline. So their first challenge was to convince the utilities board to uh, allow them to submit a permit. And once uh, hearings in each county had occurred, they could then survey the land that they want to build the pipeline through. Well, some farmers and landowners weren't real happy about that. And they argue that you have no right, this company has no right to come on my private land, uh, that the authority given to them by the utilities board is illegally issued they, 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 they can't do this. And so we're not going to let them come on our property. Now, I remember going to some of the first meetings. I think Kathy and I went to five, uh, five presentations by Summit, uh, the, the first company to propose a CO2 pipeline. And, you know, they made it real clear they didn't want to use eminent domain. They, they want to make this a partnership with the landowners and the farmers. It's going to help farmers because it's going to help assure that corn ethanol is continuing to be, will continue to be viable. Because, of course, you grow corn, half of it already, maybe more than half soon, goes to make ethanol. And in the production of that ethanol, carbon dioxide is produced, and that is what would be shipped in these pipelines to North Dakota and Illinois. And so that's, you know, from their point of view, that was a good thing for farmers. Uh, well, a lot of farmers weren't uh, seeing it the same way. And um, they pushed back. And, 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 and I mean, it's, you know, again, when the Dakota Access Pipeline came through, they had a hard time lining up landowners, but they, they were a lot further, they got a lot further on it than Summit or Navigator or Wolf, the three pipeline companies, the three carbon dioxide pipeline companies. They got a lot further than these companies have got. And, um, and you know, we did have people fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline, we had one farmer who said, I will let them come on my property when they carry me out in a pine box. Now, uh, and this guy probably meant it, uh, and the pipeline company probably knew that, and they ended up going on the guy's, the guy's neighbor's land, who were less, um, less, less, um, less strongly objecting to it, but not happy about it nonetheless. So, you know, the... Um, the bottom line is we've got landowners that don't feel that this, these companies have the authority, have the legal right to come on their land, to survey their land for a pipeline that they do not want, that they will fight to the end probably, uh, resisting eminent domain every step along the way. That's, uh, that's what's likely to happen. But, you know, the companies, uh, instead of trying to find another way around, uh, you know, I mean, they want to do this as cheaply as possible. They want to make as much money as possible. Uh, you know, we could argue about the details of uh, the Biden administration's climate bill, but certainly one point, one component of that that a lot of us are really unhappy about 
is what's called 45Q tax credits, and those are what these companies are banking on to make a ton of money. That tax credit is being provided on the assumption that this is going to be good, a good strategy for addressing climate change. It's a form of climate uh, sequestration. Uh, it's not. Uh, there is so much evidence out there that this is, a, this is not a climate solution, that in fact it will only make the problem worse in the long haul. But that's how they're using, that, that's, that's how they access these tax credits, by making that argument. People aren't buying it. Uh, either landowners and farmers aren't buying it. The environmentalists aren't buying it. People who've been addressing and working on climate change, either as activists, as policymakers, as academicians, aren't buying it. But instead of, um, you know, so, so when they found a landowner that said, no, we don't want you coming through here, instead of going around, you know, which would cost them more time, more money, and they'd probably find a way around somehow. They could probably just route it along a road. You know, but instead of doing that, they insist that they have the right to come on and survey these landowners' property. And uh, landowners push back. And so, interestingly and disturbingly, one of these companies, Navigator, uh, sued four landowners for the right to be able to come across their land and survey it. And so... We were all kind of interested in seeing how that lawsuit panned out. Well, we know how one of them panned out. Uh, this is up in Woodbury County, northwest Iowa, near Sioux City. The um, Vicki and Bill Hulse, uh, they have land in the pathway of the, of the, of the Navigator Pipeline. And uh, the judge ruled in their favor. Uh it was a quote from the uh, Iowa Capitol Dispatch story on October 10th. Um, it was the, uh, Vicki Hull says, quote, she hopes a judge's recent decision is the first of many victories in a longer-term battle to prevent the use of eminent domain to build the carbon dioxide pipeline. Uh, now, of course, um, Navigator is, uh, you know, is, is going to fight that ruling and appeal it and try to you know, force their way through a different level of the court system. But um, we'll see how it goes. This is definitely slowing them down because they're not going to get in there and survey and begin any kind of work before winter sets in. Uh, so good for the Hulses, um, uh, good for the other groups of landowners that have sued Navigator. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's hard to know how this is going to come out. I mean, I don't Personally, I'll tell you, I don't have a lot of confidence in our court system overall anymore. I think the courts have um, uh, tended to come down in favor of big interests, and that's often the often the reason is often because they, you know, they a lot of the po folks being appointed as judges to courts uh, are coming from you know appointments from politicians who have played that game, have gotten the money they quote, needed in order to get elected. And, of course, then there's the payback, and they want to do what those corporations expect of them. And we saw that, you know, I don't know if the research has been done in terms of uh, Navigator or Summit or Wolf yet, but when it comes to the Dakota Access Pipeline, and, again, they're really clever about hiding that money. It's a shell game, and they're really, really uh, magicians when it comes to making sure you don't see the money. But... Um, you know, I had some conversations with uh, some very prominent uh, Republican uh, donors, and uh, 
It was pretty clear to me how the money trail worked with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, you had uh, Rick Perry, who was on the board of, uh, of um, Energy Transfer. Again, Energy Transfer, sorry for all the names, folks. Energy Transfer was the company behind, is the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. Its president and CEO is, is, um, is, is Kelsey Warren, one of the wealthiest people in the U.S. And uh, on his board is Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas. Uh, at the time, back when the Dakota Access Pipeline was being proposed, at the time, Perry, a candidate for governor, or for, for president, rather. And so, um, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to track the entire train of money. But Branstead, our governor here in Iowa, goes down to Texas for a meeting. Um, next thing you know, there's a whole bunch of money coming to his campaign, and he doesn't really need it because he's got, I mean, Brand, Branstead was always good about just wiping out any Democratic opponent. He doesn't really need it, but he, uh, he needs to have a Republican legislature. So he makes sure that key Republicans in the state house get plenty of money. And so, again, you've got money going from Kelsey Warren to Rick Perry to Governor Branstead to House and Senate Republican leadership. And you've got, uh, as a result, I mean, when, you, when, when, it came time to, when it came time to get the legislature in Iowa to, to weigh in on the Dakota Access Pipeline, it was fascinating to see who would speak out against it, which Republicans and Democrats might have something to say against it, and which wouldn't. In fact, the... Um, the, the, the leader of the House at the time was emphatically in favor of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And how do you get to be the leader? Well, <laughs> because you got enough Republicans elected, and you do that with a bunch of money. Now, I, yeah, I, again, I, I never played this game, and I didn't even have to because I come from a very uh, lopsided district, a, a very Democratic district when I was representing this area. But, um, you know, if you're in a tough district, if your opponent is outspending you and you've got to raise a bunch of money, well, there comes, there comes the leader of your party and he's got 10 or 20 or 40 or even 50 grand for you. And he gives you that money, you win. And then when it comes time to vote for who's going to lead your caucus, you vote for the guy or gal in some cases who gave you all that money. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's a hideous game. It's an anti-democratic game. It's an anti-government game, government game, uh, good government game. But, I mean, tying this back to what I was saying before, when that happens, as it happened with the Dakota Access Pipeline, then you've got, again, a governor in this case, appointing judges. And, of course, that governor is going to appoint a judge that is reflective of the interests of his or her donors. So, back to what I was saying. I was... Pleased, I mean, a little surprised, but pleased that the judge ruled in favor of Vicki and Bill Hulse, uh, ruled in favor uh, of them saying that the Navigator CO2 Ventures Pipeline Company had no business demanding to be able to come on their land and survey their property. But, you know, I will say when this goes to the next level, I mean, I'm, I'm almost certain. I mean, Navigator and Summit and Wolf, they all have... Deep, I mean, BlackRock is involved in this. I mean, you talk about deep. These pockets are so deep, you can't see the bottom of them. And so when they appeal, as they're going to do, I'm certain, 
Uh, I'm concerned that this would go to a different level of court and then that, that, that lower court ruling would be overturned and the corporation would be allowed to come in and survey the land. We'll see. But, you know, if, if Summit was really, and I guess Navigator, I'd say the same thing about all three companies, if they were seriously interested in protecting land and protecting property rights and not, you know, and working with people in, in a cooperative way, they would find a way around the property of a landowner or farmer that doesn't want them coming through. But they're not willing to do that because they lose money. The more direct line they can run, and again, the Dakota Access Pipeline, a diagonal straight across a state laid out like a grid. And these pipelines, much of it will be diagonal as well. Anytime they can't do that diagonal, anytime they've got to follow a road or cut off to go across a property that of somebody who doesn't mind, anytime they have to do that, they lose money, and they're all about the money. They don't want to lose any money at all. And... Uh, Again, this is a story that will keep going, and we're going to keep talking about it. Um, my hat's off to Bold Iowa for being one of the organizations in the state that are leading the charge against these pipelines, and um, I know there are plenty of others as, as well. And in the end, it's all going to come down to um, strong coalitions that, uh, that, that work together to make sure that, uh, that justice is done. And so far, the courts have ruled in favor of justice because it makes no sense at all for a big corporation to force itself onto someone's property against their will. Folks, this is Ed Fallon. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about China and fish and how, well, the question is, do they want to own all the fish? Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum for our final segment today. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of this program as well. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway has an excellent local produce selection and... Check out their catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, so according to um, a recent story by the New York Times and other publications, the majority of fishing in the international waters off of the uh, 
the I think the west coast of South America, is being done by China. And with me to talk about this is Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. We don't have any fish on our farm, but fish are important. We and it sounds like we got a conflict going on here down in the Southern Hemisphere. Yes, it's been a, a big stir and for good reason. In the U.S., we are very familiar with China coming in and occupying a lot of the, the production and the, the uh, you, control of some of the, some of the infrastructure. Well, the hogs food specifically, yeah. Hogs, I mean, right. China owns, well, a Chinese corporation owns Smithfield, the largest mm-hmm. pork producer in the U.S., and much of our... Hog production is shipped overseas. That's right. That makes uh, China in control of about 25% of U.S. hog production. Wow. Yeah. So, so in, and, and what, 100% of, uh, of uh, South American fish production? Maybe, maybe, not, getting, maybe not that 80, much, but 80, 80%. Really? Yes. 80%. Right. So 80, 80% of the fish caught off the coast of Chile, Argentina, Peru. Right now. Is, 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 is caught by the Chinese. Right. And they're right. using huge fishing boats, I understand. Right, they're using everything they can get to to get the fish. So we we should talk about you know a little bit. We can't go into detail, but what what China is suddenly doing? Uh, why are they doing such extensive fishing outside of their own waters? And what does this mean for the countries that are near their yeah. own? Tra- that's their own traditionally right. uh, fished areas. And uh, what about the environment? What, all, what does this yeah, mean? Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen that fisheries across the globe are in decline. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I, my guess is that if you're coming into any, any fishing area with really high-powered equipment and just taking as much as you can, it's going to be problematic. It's, it's a huge problem. Well, China is trying to solve a problem that arose because they were solving another problem. <laughs> they... Okay. They have such an increasing middle class population uh, now. Uh, a pesky middle class. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's new economic growth. It's uh, it, more more Chinese people can afford to purchase food, uh, especially the people in the urban areas. And in the past forty years, the number of people in China who have lived in poverty has decreased by close to 800 million. That's so great, consumption-wise, <laughs> that means they, they have to eat a lot of food. On the consumption side, local sales of seafood have gone from 65 million metric tons in 2017 to 68 million point five metric tons in 2020, and it's growing 5.1% well, per year. Well. And uh, I imagine that's probably going to increase. But again... At some point, it's going to decrease because we don't have an endless supply of fish. That's right. Uh, the, the fishers in South America are really feeling the sting. They are they have less fish to be able to harvest, and uh, uh, there's been a real flashpoint, especially around the Galapagos Islands. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're talking about Ecuador, uh, Peru, Chile, Chile Argentina. Argentina pr- so, predominantly. So what happens when Ecuador declares war on China? I have no information or inclination <laughs> oh, okay. to think about that right now. And that's but, probably not going to happen. But I mean, something needs to happen. Isn't no. it, is there an in, is there an international body that can intervene and say, "Hey, this is not right"? Well, different different groups are really monitoring this. And Oceana, for instance, an international non governmental organization, is uh, who's focused on protecting the world's oceans. They said that 
the Chinese ships are getting away with harvesting more fish than they're even reporting. Oh. By they, they've discovered they're supposed that to report them. Some of okay. those, some of these boats are ch- turning off their GPS so they can hide their presence. They can hide the number of fish that they have caught. And according to Chile's National Fishing and Aquaculture Service, illegal fishing has cost uh, 397 million dollars in losses every year. Wow. And uh, they are, you know, lots more countries and mm. organizations are monitoring this. Well, we just saw a, a, a documentary last night, actually, about a, uh, a the drought in Chile and how that is seriously impacting uh, not just small farmers, but availability of food for people. And if you start, you know, adding that crisis to the decline in available fish. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chile is a, if you know your geography, folks, and I don't want to, I don't want to assume you do, uh, because Americans are historically not great at geography. But Chile is a, is long, a long, yeah. it's, it's, it's an incredibly long, thin country. And I assume that there's a lot of dependence upon fish. Well, seafood. not even for consumption, but for vocation. People who are in the fishing industry, oh, sure. and that's a lot of people in South America who have uh, spent their lives, you know, fishing and trying to f- find food to feed the nation, they are now really struggling to yeah. to find what they need. How, how do you see this resolving? Have you, have you, in your research, have you seen any indication that there's a way out of this problem? Because it doesn't sound like China is inclined to stop. I haven't seen. I haven't seen an indication. I do know that it's important enough. It's prevalent enough that not only is Biden, you know, speaking out about it now, but Trump was as well. It's it's a it's not a partisan issue. Wow. Well, that's, that's, the, the that's, Chinese are coming in and taking over, and they're they're doing some illegal stuff. Not every hmm, boat, I'm right. sure, is breaking yeah. the law and hogging all the fish, but that is happening. Hmm. Well, yeah, and you know, there's a history of that. Um, <laughs> uh, that the U.S. is complicit in as well, of course. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, there's well, a really a, a book re- really worth reading. It's called uh, Bitter Fruit. It's about the um, overthrow of the duly elected government of Guatemala back in 1954 mm-hmm. at the request, basically, of the uh, United Fruit Company that wanted to continue to monopolize banana production uh, so they could continue to supply cheap bananas to the U.S. market. Because we've got to have our bananas. Well, real yeah. quick, though, the, the econ- economic impact is bad, but the environmental impact. So this affects oh, us sure. all. Yeah. This means that uh, waters are getting depleted. The balance, uh, the ecosystem is off. Mm. And so environmentally, the, the cost of the amount of fuel to haul the, those ships back and forth, mm. wow. it's, it's going to affect us all. Well, this warrants more attention and more discussion. Hey, Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, Thanks to uh, my other guests today, Carl Olson and Mark Klipsham, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Vibes Kitchen and Bar, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot, so go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.